And scripture will be read from 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter 5, verse 18. Again, that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. Welcome again to our worship service. We're glad that you're here. If you're visiting, as always, we invite you to come back. We've got a lot of folks that are out this week since it is a holiday weekend, and we pray that they will have a safe return. If you're traveling, we wish you a very safe travel. We pray that if you have the opportunity that, you'll have the op- that you will come back and be with us again. We're going to be looking today at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, of course, Paul talks about the importance of being thankful in life, and we're going to be discussing that in a moment or two. I do want to express to you how thankful I am for each of you for your encouragement, your prayers, and all the support that you have given me. I know that the elders would be grateful for the support. They are grateful for the support that you give them. And we appreciate our elders very much. We're thankful for our deacons. We're also grateful for Jared and Anna and all the great work that they do. And our prayers are with them as well. In the passage that was read a moment ago, Paul tells us that in everything we are to give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. And there are a lot of things that we ought to be grateful for. And no doubt there are times in life when maybe we do not express our thanksgiving as often as we should. But there are some things that, from my perspective, we ought to be grateful for. Things that we ought to really be grateful to God for. Because without these blessings, we would have no hope. So I think first of all about the love of God and how the love of God is unmatched. Now again, we're talking about things to be grateful for, to be thankful for. How grateful we ought to be for the love of God and the fact that that love is unrivaled, unmatched. The Bible talks about the fact that God is love, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. That is the essence of his being. And so in Scripture, first we have the verbalization of the love of God. God has verbalized his love for us. In John chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Sometimes I think it's difficult for us to comprehend the fact that God truly loves us. Jeremiah in the long ago said, speaking of God, I have loved you with an everlasting love. As a parent, we love our children. I heard recently, as a matter of fact, I heard just this past weekend, a woman expressing her, lo- her love for her child. Apparently her child had gotten into some trouble with the law. And she said, I don't really care what he's done. I still love him. We need to understand that's how God loves us. 
He loves us no matter what we've done, no matter what we've said, no matter where we've been. Now, that's not to say he loves what we do. He doesn't endorse a lifestyle that would be contrary to his will, but he loves us. God has always loved us. He will always love us. To think that the love of God is expressed over and over again in the scriptures. You know, John said in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, that we love him because he first loved us. In Ephesians 2, verse 4, Paul said, But God, who is rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has made us alive together with Christ by grace. He said, Are you saved? And so to know that God loves me, that he loves you, that he'll always love you. Now again, he may not like what you're doing, he may not love what you're doing, but he loves you as a person, as an individual, because you are the crown of his creation. And then I think about how God has manifested or demonstrated his love for us. First, he's verbalized it, but he's also demonstrated that love. Someone has said in times past that talk is cheap. And there are a lot of folks that will use the word love in a very loose way. But when God says he loves us, when he says he loves you, he has the proof behind those words, doesn't he? You see, God loved you enough, he loved me enough to send his son to die for my sins. Think about the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. When he said, God spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. That encompasses all of us. God sent his son to die for us. Now, it's easy to love somebody that's lovable, isn't it? Not hard to love somebody that is always treating you right and doing right. The Bible says, in due season, Christ died for the ungodly. He said, God commendeth his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus demonstrated his love for us. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, greater love is no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. God demonstrated his love for us when he sent his son to die for our sins. He backed everything he said up with the sending of his son. Again, the words of Jesus in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. No wonder Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, Thanks be to God for his indescribable, his unspeakable gift. That's how much God loves us. And that's the length that he's gone to show how much he loves us. In 1 John chapter 4, John said, Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now there's a second thing I want you to think about. We talk about being grateful to God and grateful for the love that he has toward us and that that love is unmatched. I would suggest to you that we ought to be grateful to God because his longing for us is also unmatched. It is without equal. As a parent, 
We want what's best for our child, don't we? I don't know of any parent that wishes ill or harm on their children. We do everything that we can to provide a surrounding that will bless them and benefit them, allowing them to grow and to mature physically and mentally and emotionally, spiritually, because we have their best interest at heart. But when you talk about God, God has your best interest at heart. You may not understand that, but He does. Just like as a child, a child doesn't necessarily understand that what we as parents are doing is for their good and their benefit, but it's true. I think about how God desires us to be a part of His family. Paul said that God's desire is that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You think about God and the fact that He wants you to be a part of His family. He wants you to have an intimate relationship with Him. In 1 John chapter 3, John said, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Did you know that God invites us to become a part of His divine family? Think, if you would, about the words of Jesus during His earthly ministry. When He said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. The promise being, I'll give you rest. The words of John in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 where John said, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts come. There is an open invitation for you to become a part of God's family. Now, Jesus said, the way to become a part of His family is to be born again. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He wasn't talking about a physical birth, but rather a spiritual birth. And so in verse 5, he said, Except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. When we obey the gospel of Christ, we contact the blood of Christ. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are placed within the body of Christ. We are said to be members of the household of God, the family of God. And it's in that sphere that we enjoy all of these great blessings that we read about in Scripture. So first, God, God wants, He desires you to be a part of His family. There's another thing. We talk about the longing of God. God desires, God wants you to be a part of His future. I don't know what your future holds. We talk about what's before us in life, physically, materially. What's before us in life eternally. God wants you to be a part of His future. Now the Bible tells us that there is a place reserved. It's called heaven. Jesus said in John chapter 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He said, but I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The Bible tells us that this place called heaven is incorruptible, it's undefiled, it fades not away. God wants you to be a part of that future. He wants you to live forever in a place where there will be no more death. There will be no more crying or tears or pain or sorrow. For as John said in Revelation chapter 21 verse 4, all these things have passed away. God wants you to be a part of that. And I would inject, He has promised that to every faithful child of God. Paul wrote in Titus chapter 1 verse 2 that we live in hope of life eternal, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. Did you know that? That God has made a promise and God will hold true to that promise. If you'll be faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life, the victor's crown, the Stephanos. Some have already gone to their reward. Those who have lived for God, they're in a place called paradise. It is a place described as a place of comfort and rest. John said, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. And so, to know that God longs for us to be a part of His family and to be a part of His future. But then there's a third thing. We talk about being grateful to God and how we ought to get down on our knees and express our thanksgiving to Almighty God. I want to suggest to you that we ought to be thankful to God because of the life that He offers us. And by the way, the life we're talking about is unmatched. It is without equal. In order to appreciate this, uh, this life that we have, I want to ask you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes for just a minute. Because in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we have a fitting summation of the gray futility of living without God. I want you to look at Ecclesiastes with me for just a minute, very quickly. Solomon is the writer of Ecclesiastes. And over and over again, Solomon talks about the vanity, the futility of life. And really what he's saying is that life without God is futile, it's vain, it's worthless. First, if you would, think about the accomplishments of Solomon. In verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. In verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now we talk about the achievements of Solomon. It might be the case that there is a young person in our assembly today. Might be a male might be a female that will one day govern this country as president. It's a very real possibility. It might be that as a parent or grandparent that your daughter will be a senator. 
It might be the case that your son will be a congressman. And we talk about our wishes and aspirations for our children and how we want them to achieve a lot in this life. We want them to make a name for themselves. Did you know that in our short history, there have only been 44 presidents? What if your child were to become the president? Your son, your daughter, your grandson, your granddaughter. Solomon, the son of David, was king over Israel. A very powerful man. And then... I think about his accolades. Look at verse 16. I commune with my heart saying, Look, I have attained greatness. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. He said, I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Solomon had a reputation. Unrivaled, unequaled in his day, didn't he? Do you remember the Bible talks about the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, coming from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon? And she said the half hasn't been told. This guy was something. When we talk about fame and we talk about power, this guy had it all. It was all at his fingertips. And then what about his possessions? Look at verse 5 of, rather verse 4 of chapter 2. He said, I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks and all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings, and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. Look at verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. So, when you talk about Solomon, you're really envisioning somebody that had it all. This guy was something. He had fame. He had fortune. He had a vast family. He's got all these great blessings. Now, in our heart of hearts and our mind of minds, what do we typically think? If we have all of this, we're going to be happy, don't we? I mean, that's what we think. You think Solomon was happy? Listen to his assessment of life. Drop down and look at verse 17. This is sobering. In verse 17, here's what Solomon said. Now you talk about his achievements, his accolades, his acquisitions. Verse 17, therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Did you hear that? Here's a guy that's got, he's got it all. I mean, he's got fame and fortune and a family. He's got more money than he'll ever be able to spend. He's known far and wide, and he said, I hate life. Not long ago, I was doing a program with B.J. Clark. 
And during the course of our program, B.J. talked about an incident that happened to him while he was preaching at South Haven. He used an illustration of a story that he had seen, an interview he had seen of Elvis Presley. And he said during the course of the interview, and he's relating this to the church, Elvis Presley said to the one doing the interview, Sometimes I think I'm the most miserable person in the world. And B.J. said that the guy that was doing the interview said, Oh, come on, you know that's not the case. You know you're not the most miserable person in the world. He said, I am. Sometimes I think I'm the most miserable person in the world. B.J. said when he preached that lesson, he didn't know that there were some people that had close kinship to Elvis, and they were in the audience that day. So he went and visited them, unbeknowing to him that they were related to Elvis. And when he got to their home, he said the first thing they told him, we've been out of church for many years. It's really interesting to us that the first time we come back, the preacher talks about Elvis. And they said, we were in that room when he was interviewed that day. Elvis would allow people, friends, family members to be a part of an interview as long as they didn't interrupt or get in the way. And they said, we were there that day. We heard Elvis make those statements. And they said the interview, the person doing the interview continued trying to prompt him to say, look, you know you're not that miserable. You know you're not that unhappy. And he said, Elvis did not back off of it. Why do I say that? Why do I tell you that story? Because I want you to know just because you have things, just because you have power, just because you're great and you have a, a name that's known to all people doesn't mean you're going to be happy. Doesn't mean that you're going to be satisfied and content with life as it is. That's why Solomon said, Therefore I hated life. Look at all the things he had. And yet he hated life. Turn over with me, if you would, to chapter 12 very quickly. The gray futility of life without God. But there is the golden fortune of life with God. Solomon, in summation, says, look, life's not about things. Did Solomon know what he was talking about? I think he did. There was this void, this deep yearning within his heart. And so in chapter 12, Solomon writes, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty. The word duty is not in the original, supplied by the translators. Some translations say, for this is man's all. And I think that is the essence of what he's saying there. The essence of life is not about your achievements and accomplishments. It's not about your accolades. It's not about your acquisitions. It's about living for God. Making Him the hub of your life, the focus of your life. He said, that's the whole of man. Because God's going to bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it's good or whether it's evil. Now, you may be here today, 
And it might be that you have been one in search of happiness, contentment, satisfaction. And you've been out in the world and you've tried what the world has to offer. You have been, to a lesser extent, in the shoes of Solomon. And you've tried it all and your conclusion is, you know what, there's something missing. There's something that's just not right in my life. Let me tell you what that something is. It's a life without God. You'll never be happy without God in your life. There are a lot of folks in our world today, they have it all like Solomon. They have it all, but they have nothing. Hard to understand, isn't it? You see, there are some people, they have everything this world has to offer, but they don't have anything because they don't have a relationship with God. There is an abundant life. There is a life offered by God that is unmatched. It is unparalleled. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly, John 10, 10. You can have that abundant life. Now you talk about living a life that is golden. You talk about living a life that is filled with satisfaction and contentment and peace and harmony. It's a Christian life. Greatest life there is, bar none. There is nothing this world has to offer that can rival your relationship to God. You'll be blessed now, and you'll be, you'll be blessed beyond the grave. So I ask you, are you grateful? It might be the case that you're here today and you understand the love of God and you're appreciative of that. It might be that you can comprehend the longing of God, but you haven't made God's longing a part of your life. It might be that you understand and you're grateful for the life extended through the Lord Jesus Christ. You're grateful that your family members have tapped into that life, but you haven't. I want to encourage you to make it real in your life. Do that today. Why not close this year out in Christ to know that you're a part of the family of God? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you strongly come to Christ, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, just as Peter said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. Repenting of every sin, as Peter said on Pentecost Day in Acts 2, 38. Confessing the name of Christ as the eunuch did in Acts chapter 8, verse 37. Being immersed in water so that every sin can be washed away, as Paul did, as recorded by Luke in Acts twenty two sixteen, and then being faithful until death. Let me tell you what, if you'll do that, you will be well on your way to spending eternity with God and then just be faithful until death. If you're here today and you've gone back into the world and you're playing the life of a prodigal, I know you're not happy. 
Because I can read Luke 15 and I can read about the prodigal and I know he wasn't happy. Oh, you think you've got things going on in your life, but you don't. Temporarily, maybe you think you're happy, but you're not. The Bible says that young man came to himself and said, I will arise and go to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Sometimes we just need to humbly admit we've lived in sin. Time to come home. And the beauty is God will take you back as one of his children and forgive your sins. James said, confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another as we stand and sing.